And now, for the show reflecting on classic radio, Hollywood 360, with your host, Carl Amari. Who's that strange-looking man behind you? That's Carl. I met him at the laundry map. Sam, sweetheart. I don't know what to do, Rabbi. Every night he listens to the radio. I can't keep him away. The Lone Ranger, uh, the Shadow, the Master Avenger. Uh, this is not good. It tends to induce bad values, false dreams, lazy habits. Want to hear the most annoying sound in the world? Hello, everyone. I'm Carl Amari, and this is Hollywood 360, the radio show that presents the best in classic radio. This hour on Hollywood 360 will conclude Father Knows Best, starring Robert Young. Then we'll try to solve a true murder case on Somebody Knows from 1950. By my side is my co-host, Lisa Wolf. What's up, Lisa? Hi. Are you a good detective? Oh, the best. Well, yeah. you might be able to solve a murder case and win $5,000. I will give it my best shot. I'll tell you all about it when we get to that portion of the show where we play Somebody Knows. But right now, it's the conclusion to Father Knows Best. We began listening to this last time. Let's go back to June 8, 1950. This is called Time for a New Car, starring Robert Young. Here is Father Knows Best. You know, for some reason or other, automobile people are a cheerful lot. The smiling Irishman, the laughing Lithuanian, they're a gay group of fellows with lilting hearts and names to match. In Springfield, it's Fred Haney, the happy Hibernian. And that's where the Andersons are headed, like this. Father. What is it, Betty? Don't you think it's about time we gave up on this old heap? Betty, please don't annoy your father. Well, jumping creepers. It's all right, Margaret. I'm used to being ridiculed. After all, I'm only her father. Everybody has to get so personal about everything. Why is it such an insult if I think we need a new car? Betty, this is more than a car. This is an old friend which has served us faithfully and well. And you don't give up an old friend just because it's a little droopy in the fenders. You treat it gently, humor it, restore it to health. The best thing you can do for this friend is give it a decent funeral. Betty! <laughs> for your information, Betty, this car will be as good as new in less than a week. And it'll be good for another 12 years. Holy cow. <laughs> Golly, the car's even older than I am. It makes more noise, too. Father... What is it, Betty? As long as you insist on having the car fixed up, can we please have it painted? I fully intend to have it painted. A new fender, a new paint job, a few little touches on the motor here and there. We'll have a car you can be proud of. Can we have it painted blue, please? What's the matter with black? But it's always been black, and black is so dark. Well, we'll get a light black. <laughs> Red. Then you can pretend you're riding in a fire engine <laughs> You know, Margaret, I should have had this done a long time ago I had the car fixed up, I mean When I think of the way I've let it get run down well, <laughs> I should have had my head examined That's what we've been telling you What? <laughs> oh, <laughs> I didn't mean, uh, uh, I mean, uh, well, uh, green's a nice color <laughs> Is it? Well, if you like green. 
You know, for a while I thought maybe we'd get a new car. Golly! But then I said, why? Oh. I can have this one fixed up for fifty or sixty dollars, so why go to all that unnecessary expense? Uh, did anybody say they'd fix it up for fifty or sixty dollars? No, but I'm just figuring conservatively. Maybe it'll only be forty dollars. What a dreamer. But <laughs> I don't know. When I was a boy, children showed a little respect for their parents. They didn't spend half their life... Jim. What is it, Margaret? Isn't that Haney's? I know it's Haney's. I've only been here a million times. Where was I, bud? They didn't spend half their life. <laughs> oh. They didn't spend half their life trying to make up wisecracks about their fathers. Now, behave yourself. Okay, Dad. Father. I know, Betty. You want it painted blue. Well, I just thought... You want blue. Kathy wants red. Bud wants green. How would it be if we settled for a nice scotch plaid? <laughs> well, hello, Jim. Got the whole family with you this time, huh? Oh, that's right. Say, Fred, I'd like to see if we can't... We want it painted red. Kathy. And make the horn louder. <laughs> Kathy, get back in the car and sit down. Yes, Daddy. Fred. Father, look. What? That yellow one isn't it a dream boat? Betty, I'm trying to tell Mr. Haney... Boy, look at that foreign job. Is that something? Margaret. Dear, I know you and Mr. Haney want to talk, so why don't the children and I just wander around and look at the different cars? An excellent idea, Mrs. Anderson. Excellent. Oh, Bud, look at that one. It's got a motorcycle on it. That's for deliveries, Dopey. <laughs> Mother, have you ever seen anything like that blue one? It's very nice, sweetie. Well, maybe now we can talk. Don't tell me you're finally going to give up on that wreck. What wreck? <laughs> Just because it looks a little shabby. Why don't you face it, Jim? You'll need a new car. Fred, I'm not spending any $1,600 for a car. Sixteen sixty-three twenty. Pardon me. Including license and tax. I'll take 12 Jim, I've known you for a long time. I value your business. But more than that, I value your friendship. Then tell Gilhausen to fix my car so it'll stay together. He can't, Jim. It's old. It's worn out. You're just throwing good money after bad. Will you please buy a new car? You don't have to buy it from me. Buy it from anybody, but buy it. Are you all finished? Yes. No. <laughs> just tell Gilhausen to fix my car right this time. Of all the stub... Gilhausen. I'm over here, Fred. Come here, will you? Ben Hur is back. Very funny. Holy smoke, Mr. Anderson. I don't have to work on that thing again, do I? No, you don't have to. I know a lot of places that'll be very glad. Uh, just a minute, Jim. Don't get up on your high horse. If you want it fixed, we'll fix it. Won't we, Gil? We'll fix it or we'll give it either a transfusion. <laughs> Why anybody would want to throw good money into that wreck? Gil? So we fix it. Where's the fender? It got stepped on. It what? It's gone. It fell off. Because you don't know how to put a fender on. I put fenders on before you was born. But not fenders like your fenders. All right. I... All right, Gil. We'll just have to put on a new fender. Okay, Jim? I suppose so. While we're at it, let's do it upright. Let's paint the whole thing. Get the motor tuned up. Fix the lights. Have you got all that, Gil? This time, we're going to fix it right. Well, that's more like it. So, we start with the fender. Look, you see this big hole in the panel? Yes. That's where I got to bolt the fender. On a hole. 
So? We need a new panel. A uh, new panel. Go ahead, Gil. I'm writing it down. Wait a minute. Why can't you just... A new panel the... bolts onto the body, only it's all rusted away over here and it won't hold. So? We need a new body. <laughs> Look, Fred, all I want frame you to do... Frame won't take a new body. It's too light. New frame, chassis, rear assembly, transmission. You got it? I got it. New crankshaft, flywheel, feed line... Mr. Gilhouse. Connecting rods, clutch, camshaft... Mr. Gilhausen. New springs, muffler, exhaust, shocks, bumpers... Mr. Gilhausen. Horn's all right. <laughs> Mr. Gilhausen, forget about the whole thing, will you? Just fix the wire in the distributor and I'll be happy. Mr. Anderson, look. Lift the hood, will you, Fred? Okay. Thanks, Fred. <laughs> now, you see that wire, Mr. Anderson? It goes down there and hooks onto that. But it can't because it's loose. Here, you see this? You got a cracked block, the water pump's broke, the radiator leaks, the piston assembly's shot, the valves are gone. You got to get a new motor. <laughs> Just because you can't hook up one little wire, huh? What am I going to hook it on? <laughs> Jim... We're trying to help you, and with a job this big, we'll give you a special rate. Well, that's more like it. Uh, what does it come to? Uh, the whole thing? With a paint job. You want me anymore, Fred? Uh, no, thanks a lot, Gil. Okay. See you later, Mr. Anderson. You bet. Go ahead, Fred. Figure it up. And uh, sharpen your pencil. Well, uh, let me see. 1538, 496. Uh, the whole thing, including labor and parts, comes to exactly sixteen hundred and seventy-eight dollars. Sixteen? That's fifteen dollars more than a new one. Jim, this is all on a piecework basis. And besides, with seat covers, you'll have a car that's practically new. Sixteen hundred. Margaret. Well, I told you in the very beginning, Jim. Margaret. Jim, is anything wrong? Sixteen hundred dollars. It's an outrage. <laughs> That's what it is, an outrage. Well, you think it over, Jim, and whatever you decide, just let me know. $1,678. That's the most outrageous thing I've ever heard in my life. What did he say, Dad? Is it going to be blue, Father? Daddy, the man let me shoot the grease gun. All right, get in. We're going home. Aren't you going to have it fixed? I said get in. I want to stay and shoot the grease gun. <laughs> All right, children, let's not argue. Do as your father says. I'll get another mechanic. That's what I'll do. Haney isn't the only dealer in Springfield. Tell me my car isn't any good. $1,678. Dear, don't you think if you talk to Mr. Haney again... Haney? He's a worse crook than Gilhausen ever was. <laughs> He's ten times as bad. Somebody will fix this car and it'll be good for another 12 years. And another 140,000 miles. Oh, Father. Have you heard of the wonderful one-horse shay that was built in such a logical way it ran a hundred years to a day? Well, we're sitting in it right now. A hundred years? Holy cow, Dad. This car's as sound as it was the day we bought it. It's a good car, solid and sturdy. I'll put on a fender, get a little paint, a few tires. <laughs> what was that? Another fender fell off. Well, we'll put it back on. What was that? Another fender fell off. Well, we'll put it back on. Dad. 
to get a new car. Fred? Fred? Oh, Fred! You see, of course, if you're not a dunce, how it went to pieces all at once. All at once and nothing first, just as bubbles do when they burst. End of the wonderful one-horse shade. Logic is logic. That's all I say. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Robert Young. Since the beginning of this year, as you probably know, we on Father Knows Best have been working hand-in-glove with the Inter-Industry Highway Safety Committee. Our particular phase of the overall problem was the enlistment of teenagers and their parents in a good driver's club. And now, after five months of campaigning, we'd like to make our first report. And for all those connected with this safety movement, we have news I consider little short of miraculous. Since the inception of this campaign, two and three-quarter million pledges have been requested by the teenage drivers of America. Think of it, two and three-quarter million. In large cities, in small hamlets, the young men and women of this country have proved beyond a shadow of a doubt the basic integrity of their generation. We are proud of them, prouder than we can say. By recognizing their common problem, by driving safely and carefully, these young men and women have brought added security to the highways and everlasting glory to themselves. We congratulate them on a job well done and ask only that they continue their good work in the future. Good night. Join us again next week when we'll be back with Father Knows Best, starring Robert Young as Jim Anderson, with Roy Bargey and the Maxwell House Orchestra, and yours truly, Bill Foreman. So until next Thursday, good night and good luck from the makers of Maxwell House, America's favorite brand of coffee. Always good to the last drop. Father Knows Best was transcribed in Hollywood and written by Ed James. Now stay tuned for Screen Guild Theater, which follows immediately over most of these stations. Stay tuned for Screen Guild Theater, next on NBC. And that's Father Knows Best from June 8, 1950. Time to buy a new car, starring Robert Young. That was sponsored by Maxwell House Coffee, as heard on NBC. Let's take a break. When we come back, it's Somebody Knows. Stick around. More Hollywood 360 after these important messages. Hi, this is Carl Amari. I've started the Classic Radio Club, where each month you'll receive 10 of the greatest shows of all time on five CDs in a collector case. Join now and receive your first five-CD collection of 10 classic radio shows, regularly priced at $39.95 for only $4.99. Each month I'll hand-select 10 more of the greatest classic radio shows of all time from my library of 100,000 shows and send them to you on five CDs. And I promise they'll be superior sound quality and you'll never receive a duplicate show. Log on to ClassicRadioClub.com and we'll rush you your first five-CD collection with ten of the greatest classic radio shows of all time for only $4.99. Your first collection will feature Abbott and Costello, Sam Spade, Dimension X, Escape, Fibber McGee and Molly, Gunsmoke, Have Gun Will Travel, Inner Sanctum, Jack Benny, and Suspense. You're going to love the Classic Radio Club. Learn how to join at ClassicRadioClub.com. That's ClassicRadioClub.com. Now back to the best in classic radio 
on Hollywood 360. Welcome back. I'm Carl Amari. This is Hollywood 360 across about 200 radio stations coast to coast. Make sure you check out our website. It's Hollywood360radio.com. Also, make sure that you subscribe to Remind Magazine. It's our main sponsor here on Hollywood 360. It's chock full of nostalgia. If you love nostalgia, movies, TV, radio, this is the magazine for you. Just go to their website, remindmagazine.com. That's remindmagazine.com, full-color magazine. You can pick up an issue at any Barnes & Noble across the country or any Walmart store. So do check it out. It's our main sponsor. We're very proud to be associated with Remind Magazine. Check it out, remindmagazine.com. All right, it's time now for Somebody Knows. This was a mystery series. It was a summer replacement for Suspense in 1950. It only ran eight episodes. That's all there was, eight episodes. But it was based on the notion that there really are no perfect crimes, that someone somewhere could have the one missing clue that would solve a celebrated murder case. Now, the producers would actually pay $5,000 to a listener if they could send in a clue that solved the dramatized actual crime case. So it's a very cool idea. Now, one of the cases included the murder of Elizabeth Short, the victim in the notorious Black Dahlia case. Now, Los Angeles' best supporting actors were part of the uh, ensemble, including Harry Bartell, William Conrad, and Ben Wright. Really cool. I think you're going to like this. Let's go back to August 10, 1950. This is called The Samuel Paris Murder. It stars Harry Bartell. Part one now of Somebody Knows. Ladies and gentlemen, a $5,000 reward will be offered each week on the program immediately following this announcement. You out there, you who think you've committed the perfect crime, the perfect murder, that there are no clues, no witnesses, that your identity is unknown, listen. Somebody knows. Yes, you, wherever you may be, no matter where you're hiding, somewhere, sometime... Someone listening to this program is going to bring you to justice. Yes? Somebody knows. The Columbia Broadcasting System presents Somebody Knows, a program conceived in the public interest, dedicated to aiding the forces of law and order in the solution of this nation's unsolved crimes. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to recreate for you tonight... All the known facts in an actual unsolved murder. Somewhere, someone among you's had contact with the killer or killers. Someone whose identity need never be known has seen evidence or possesses information that can lead to the solution of this crime. In the public interest, the Columbia Broadcasting System offers a $5,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the killer in this unsolved murder. We ask you then to please listen carefully. Or you may be the one to win this reward. Somebody knows. It may be you. And now we open the files on one of this nation's unsolved murders. It's homicide file number HF12342, the Boston, Massachusetts Police Department. The unsolved murder of Samuel I. Paris. It's approximately 3.30 p.m. Saturday, April 3rd, 1948. At 54 Jones Avenue in the Dorchester District of Boston, Massachusetts, Samuel I. Paris, a taxi driver, is preparing to leave home to go to work. 
we're going to clean handkerchiefs, Sammy. Okay, honey, okay. You're feeling happy today, aren't you, Sammy? Can <laughs> you give me a good, for instance, why I shouldn't with you around? <laughs> I wouldn't even try. Now, look, Sammy, be sure and have a good dinner. Yeah, sure. sure you sure. work a long shift, and I want you to eat well. All right. And be sure to wear your heavy jacket. You can't tell about these spring nights, and I don't want you catching cold. <laughs> okay, honey, okay. You know, I thought we only had three kids, but as far as you're concerned, I guess I'm the fourth. <laughs> Goodbye, dear. Goodbye, Sammy. Take care of yourself. Oh, now, don't worry. Oh, kiss the kids for me, huh? And, uh, Mrs. Paris, you know something? Better save a couple for me when I get home. Oh, Sammy. <laughs> so long, honey. The time is approximately 10.45 p.m. Saturday, April 3rd, 1948. Cab number 702 of the Independent Taxi Cab Operators Association is speeding along quiet residential Norfolk Avenue in the Roxbury District of Boston, Massachusetts. Suddenly it swerves toward the curb, smashes into the rear of a parked car, and comes to a stop on the sidewalk. same moment, in the home of Fred Lutfi, 177 Norfolk Avenue in Roxbury, a game of whist is in progress. The players are Mr. Lutfi, his wife, Jean, his mother, and his sister, Mrs. Barbara Darian of 12 Rutland Street, South End, who is visiting him. <laughs> oh, Fred, now you should have known better than that. Oh, well, I always say this game is more luck than skill, Barbara. <laughs> oh, now, Fred. Oh, he's only jealous, Jean. Maybe someday he... Hey. Now, what was that? Oh, sounds like a couple of women drivers tangling bumpers somewhere. Mm. <laughs> Whose deal is it? Oh, mine, I guess. Oh. Though I don't mind telling you, young man, that I consider your remarks about women drivers as being highly... Huh. Oh, I wonder. What, Barbara? My car's parked out in front. Do you think it's possible that... Maybe I better look out the window. Well, it is my car. It is? Your car, Barbara. Yes. That, that taxi cab must have hit it. Look, the cab's still on the sidewalk with its lights on. Yes. That, and the driver is somebody's running away down the street. How do you like that? A hit and run. Hey, look, let's get out there, huh? Now, be careful, Fred. Don't get in any trouble. Look. Oh, he's practically ruined the rear end of my car. Shoved it way down the street. Don't worry, Barbara. The cab company will take care of it. Oh. They... Hey, wait a minute. Oh, it wasn't the driver who... Look at him. Sleeping at the wheel. Must be drunk or something. Now, look, Mac, what was the idea of driving like a lunatic? Don't you know that you... That... What is it, Fred? What's the... This man. The driver, I, I think he's... Jenny! Jenny, you better call the police! It is approximately 10.50 p.m., Saturday, April 3rd, 1948. At the dispatcher's desk on the seventh floor of police headquarters in Boston, Massachusetts. Dispatcher. I, I want to report some trouble. What kind of trouble, ma'am? A cab. It ran into my sister's car and then onto the sidewalk in the front of our place. It's there now. Something's wrong with the driver. What's the address, please? It's uh, 177 Norfolk Avenue in Roxbury. 177 Norfolk. Yes. And your name? All right, Mrs. Lefty. Thanks for your notifying us. We'll have some men right over there. 
The dispatcher takes a quick look at the lighted control board in front of him, notes the disposition of cars in the Roxbury district, and picks up his hand microphone set. W-R-A-S, calling car 9-0. Calling car 9-0. 9-0. Taxi cab has jumped curb on Norfolk Avenue near Shirley Street. Investigate. 9-0, on our way. W-R-A-S, 10-55. And that's the first portion of Somebody Knows. More after these words. Now back to the best in classic radio on Hollywood 360. Now let's get back to Somebody Knows. Within a minute or two, Car 90 arrives at the scene of the crash. The police officers make a quick check of the driver, who is still slumped over the wheel. Then they put in a call for an ambulance. While waiting for it to arrive, they talk with Mr. Lufty and Mrs. Darien. You didn't touch the driver. He was like that when you first saw him, huh? Yeah, that's right, officer. He slumped over the wheel just like that. You know, at first we... Well, we thought he might be drunk or something, and then... Well, my wife called you. There's a tab of $1. sixty on the meter. It's still running. Must have had a fare. Uh, was anyone else in that cab? No. No, there wasn't anyone else in that... Oh, wait a minute. I did see someone running down the street. Yeah? It was just as I looked out the window. I saw him turn down Shirley Street. Could you identify him? Oh, no. No, I don't think so. Yeah. All I could tell was that he seemed young, he had dark clothes on. And... No, I'm sure I could Yeah. Did you get the driver's name for the identification card? It's Paris. Samuel I. Paris, 54 Jones Avenue, Dorchester. Okay, be sure to give it to him, huh? All right, folks. Stand back now. We need back. Stand back, please. Let the ambulance control the The ambulance rushes the cab driver to the Boston City Hospital, where he's examined immediately upon arrival. Dead. Probably cardiac failure. Natural causes. Better remove him to the morgue. The body of Samuel I. Paris is then removed to the Southern Mortuary, an annex of Boston City Hospital. His widow, Mrs. Rachel Paris, and his three children are informed of the tragedy. Then, some twelve hours later, the autopsy is required by law, is performed by Dr. Richard Ford, associate medical examiner of Suffolk County. Too bad the law makes you waste your time this way, Dr. Ford. Mm. Investigating the causes of death or life is never a waste of time. Mm. You'd better learn that before you complete your internship. <laughs> I know how you feel about that, Dr. Ford. What's to be learned about causes of death in a routine autopsy like this one, for instance? You never can tell. It's always possible to... Ah, there. Well, it's always possible to uncover a murder. Murder? But... Dr. Ford. Yes. It's a small caliber bullet. Penetrated under the right ear and lodged beneath the left ear after piercing the brain. We'd better notify the superintendent of police. With the disclosure that the death of Samuel I. Paris was caused by the firing of a bullet into his head, Superintendent of Police Edward W. Fallon orders an immediate all-out effort to apprehend his killer. A detail of patrolmen makes a house-to-house canvas of the Norfolk Avenue, Shirley Street area, questioning residents seeking clues to the slayer. Thomas Del Tolfo of 164 Norfolk Avenue tells them... 
When I heard the crash, I looked out of my window. Saw a man get out of the rear of the cab. Well, he was wearing a sweater. Or maybe a short coat. I think he had a gray soft hat. Well, he looked young to me. I thought at first the cabbie had a blowout and the fare was leaving. Bus driver James Spillane of 22 Bigson Street, Dorchester, tells the police. It was about 10 to 11 Saturday night. That was uh, April 3rd. And I pick up this passenger at Shirley Street in Massachusetts Avenue. I remember him pretty clear. He's about 19 years old. He's maybe 5 foot 8. He's got blonde hair and he was built kind of thin. He was wearing a gabardine coat. No hat. He got off at the Northampton Elevated Station. It's about 11.05. Police ballistician Edward J. Culkin reports. The bullet that killed Paris was 22 caliber from a short shell fired from a target pe- pistol or an old or foreign gun. The murder weapon will be easily identifiable once we have it in our possession. Out of the welter of reports finding their way to Superintendent Fallon's desk, a number of pertinent facts come to light. Facts that enable the police to reconstruct the last hour and 45 minutes of Samuel Paris's life. Now, this is their reconstruction of the crime. Please listen carefully. It is 9 p.m. Saturday, August 3rd, 1948. Cab 702 with driver Samuel Paris at the wheel is parked at the stand on Tremont Street in front of the Parker House. A man and a woman enter the cab and give him an address. Okay, sir. Somewhere in the vicinity of North Station, his two passengers leave the cab, and Samuel Paris heads back in a southwesterly direction. Then at approximately 10 o'clock, he parks at the cab stand at Washington and Neyland Streets, and almost immediately picks up a sailor and a girl as passengers, and drives them downtown. Then at 10.15 p.m., he's returning from this trip when he stops for a signal light on Tremont Street at Park. And another cab driven by Harry Pitchell of 53 Ellington Street, Dorchester, pulls up alongside. Hi, Sammy. Hey, Harry. <laughs> How goes it? Same as usual. What about you? Uh, could be better. Could be worse. I ain't kicking. <laughs> That's Sammy Ferris, all right. Don't you ever kick? <laughs> What's the kick? Got my health, I'm working, they still need cabs in Boston, I'm happy. <laughs> okay, pal, I won't argue. See me? Yeah, sure thing, Harry. As the lights change, Samuel Paris drives back toward the cab stand at Washington and Neyland Streets. It is approximately 10.20 as he pulls in and stops. Then, at about 10.25, the door of his cab opens and a man gets in. Yeah, sure thing, Mr. Samuel Paris drives south on Neyland to Albany Street, then turns west in the direction of Roxbury. When he finally reaches Hampton Street, he turns again, and then onto Norfolk Avenue. Somewhere along the way, he suddenly feels the cold muzzle of a gun pressing against his neck below his right ear. All right, Hackey, that's a gun you feel. What? What is this, Mac? A sticker? What else? Look, I got no dough on me. You should have better sense than a pick and a Hackey was out. But I'm telling you, Shut I got... Up. Okay, Mac, okay. What am I supposed to do now? Just keep driving, I'll tell you what. Just keep driving. Okay, you're the boss. Samuel Paris keeps driving down Norfolk Avenue. He's calm, alert. He slips his wristwatch far up his left sleeve, hoping it might go unnoticed. He tries to figure some way out. Then an idea comes to him. 
Hey, what do you think you're doing? Well, maybe I'm in a hurry to get this over with. Slow down. Slow down in here. I'll blow your lousy brains out. Now, slow down. Okay, Mac. Okay. Dave, what are you doing, you white Now the day following the murder of Samuel I. Paris. A car is speeding down a highway in Dedham near the Westwood town line. Four youths are inside. The driver is weaving recklessly in and out of traffic. A dozen times accidents are only narrowly averted. Finally, a pursuing police car forces them over to the curb. All right, step out. Keep your hands up. Come on. Get a move on. Out. All of you, out. Better frisk him. Between hit and run and a stolen car, anything's liable to show up. Stand still, you. Just keep those hands up. Hey, something did show up. This. Yeah? Looks like twenty-two caliber. It is. Isn't that the caliber that got the cabbie over in Roxbury last night? Yeah. And that's why this car was reported stolen. Got a hunch the boys at Roxbury are going to be pretty happy to see these four punks. The four youths are turned over to the police at the Roxbury Division. They're questioned thoroughly. The 22 caliber pistol found on one of them is given to ballistics for checking. Then sometime later, the police issue a statement. Ballistics reports that the 22 caliber pistol is not the one used in the Paris murder. Our questioning has convinced us that these four youths have no connection with that case. The investigation into the murder of Samuel Paris continues unabated as the entire city of Boston is aroused. Voices of anger and protest are raised in the city council, in veterans' organizations. The cab drivers of Boston have their own way of showing their feelings about this case. Thanks for the tip, mister. It's going to the widow and kids of Sammy Paris. The search for the slim, blonde youth seen boarding the bus at Massachusetts and Shirley goes on unrelentingly. In his identification now seems to lie the one possible hope for solution of the killing. It is now April 7, 1948. In police station 9 in Roxbury, the desk sergeant is checking reports from several patrolmen out in the field when the door opens. Then steps approach the desk and halt. I'd like to talk to someone, please. Sure. What's it? Ab- hey. Standing before the desk is a young man about 19 years of age. He's about five foot eight, thin. He has blonde hair. I, uh, I'm the man who got on that bus at Massachusetts, and surely I understand you're looking for me. The man is interviewed, questioned thoroughly. His statements checked and rechecked. And the result? We are satisfied that this man has no connection with the death of Samuel Paris. Then, five months later, what seems to be the first major break in the case suddenly occurs. It's 2 a.m. on the morning of September 12, 1948. 
A cab driven by Joseph Murad of 29 Upton Street, South End, is driving through Andrews Square. Hey, cab! Taxi! Hey, taxi! See in 6th Street, South Boston. Then, as the cab approaches the destination, Murad suddenly feels something cold and hard pressed against his neck. Okay, cabbie, this is a stick-up. The man orders Murad to throw his money on the floor, and the driver does so. Then he's ordered to stop the cab. He's forced out, and the man drives the cab away. Twenty minutes later, cab driver Isidore Klein of 122 Howland Street in Roxbury picks up a man on Washington Street near Bennett. The same procedure is followed as with Joseph Murad. Klein is forced to throw his money on the floor. He's ordered out of his cab, and the man drives off in it. Meanwhile, a special service squad containing Sergeant Thomas O'Keefe, Detectives Frank Mulvey, and John Preston has been alerted to the Murad holdup. They're cruising on Dorchester Avenue near Columbia when... Look, there's a cab being hailed up ahead there. Yeah, I see it. Man getting in alone. I think I better talk to him. You better get out and keep your hands up. I think they want to talk to you at headquarters. The suspect is identified at police headquarters by drivers Murad and Klein. He's questioned exhaustively by special officers Leo Devlin and Arthur O'Shea, who've been working on the Paris case. Then this statement is issued. We are satisfied that this man has no connection with the death of Samuel Paris. It is now September 20th, 1948. Judge Samuel Eisenstadt of the Roxbury Court makes a report on the inquest into the death of Samuel I. Paris. An inquest that's been held open since April 3rd. The deceased was a man of excellent reputation. Good father and a good husband who had no known enemies. There was no motive for anyone to wish to take his life unless the motive were robbery. I advocate that the case be held open in the event that the assailant should be apprehended. Despite the fact that this court is unable to recommend prosecution or the issuance of complaints against this unknown person. Unknown person? No. The killer of Samuel I. Paris is not unknown. Somewhere, in whatever town or city this man is hiding, someone of you has seen him today has spoken to him, eaten lunch and dinner with him, knows the location of the gun that he fired on that night two and a half years ago. Know the cold-blooded, brutal killer who took the life of Samuel I. Paris is not unknown. Somebody knows. Now listen carefully, please. Listen, all of you, wherever you may be. We're going to give you a recapitulation of pertinent facts in the unsolved murder of Samuel I. Paris. Better make a note of them. And remember, by following the instructions we shall give you in a moment, you may be the one to earn a $5,000 reward. Now, here are the actual facts in the case. Samuel I. Paris, 39 years of age, 
a cab driver, was shot to death in his cab in the vicinity of 177 Norfolk Avenue in the Roxbury District of Boston, Massachusetts. The time, approximately 10.45 p.m., Saturday, April 3rd, 1948. The murder weapon was 22 caliber. It is believed to be either a target pistol or an old or foreign gun. A young man, slight build, wearing either a sweater or a short coat and a soft gray hat, was witnessed running from the scene of the crime. This man is definitely wanted by the police as a suspect in the murder of Samuel I. Paris. Ladies and gentlemen, if any of you possesses information that may have a bearing on the unsolved murder of Samuel I. Paris, and please don't send guesses or hunches, but only actual, authentic information, follow these instructions so that your name and identity need never be made known unless you wish. Now listen carefully. Write your information on a plain sheet of paper. Do not sign your name. Instead, sign it with six numbers. Any arrangement of any six numbers. And then tear off a blank corner of that paper with a ragged edge. Write the same six numbers on that corner and keep it. Mail the rest of the paper with the information to Somebody Knows, Hollywood, California. You need tell no one what you've done. Mail your letter to Somebody Knows, Hollywood, California. And if the information you've supplied leads to the arrest and conviction of the killer of Samuel I. Paris, we'll announce your signature number on this program. Then, if you don't want your name to be known, go to your lawyer or doctor, your priest, minister, or rabbi, and have him present the torn corner of the paper to any CBS station. In this way, you do not need to appear in person. If the torn corner matches the original paper containing the information, the $5,000 reward will be yours. Remember, you, wherever you are, you whose name need never be known, may win a reward of $5,000. Next week at the same time, we'll present another true case history of unsolved murder. You out there, you who have murdered in cold blood and think you've gotten away with it, listen, you cannot escape. There is no perfect crime. Remember, you are not unknown. Somebody knows. Tonight's case was written by Sidney Marshall from information in the files of the Boston, Massachusetts Police Department. Research was by Maurice Zim. Music was composed and played by Milton Charles. Somebody Knows is a James L. Safier production in association with CBS by arrangement with the Chicago Sun-Times and is based on a copyright owned by W.L. Finstad. It was narrated and directed by Jack Johnstone. In order to be eligible for the reward, letters containing actual authentic information leading to the arrest and conviction of the killer or killers of Samuel I. Paris must be addressed to Somebody Knows, Hollywood, California, and must be postmarked not later than midnight, August 30th, 1950. Arrest of the guilty person or persons must occur within 90 days of that date, and conviction must be within one year of tonight's broadcast. If more than one person gives the information leading to conviction, our judges will divide the $5,000 reward among them in proportion to the importance the judges attach to the facts implied. And in this, the decision of our judges will be final. Until next Thursday at the same time, this is Don Baker saying good night. And remember, somebody knows. This is CBS, where you'll find Arthur Godfrey's daytime program every Monday through Friday on the Columbia Broadcasting System. 
And that somebody knows from August 10th, 1950, with the Samuel Paris murder, starring Harry Bartell. Also in the cast, you heard Jack Johnstone, Gerald Moore, Lawrence Dobkin, Vic Perrin, Sheldon Leonard. Yeah, good old Sheldon Leonard. And uh, Stanley Waxman, along with Lou Merrill, that was sustained over CBS. As I said, this was a summer replacement for suspense. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, more of Hollywood 360. More Hollywood 360 after these important messages. Hi, this is Carl Amari. I've started the Classic Radio Club, where each month you'll receive 10 of the greatest shows of all time on five CDs in a collector case. Join now and receive your first five-CD collection of 10 classic radio shows, regularly priced at $39.95 for only $4.99. Each month I'll hand-select 10 more of the greatest classic radio shows of all time from my library of 100,000 shows and send them to you on five CDs. And I promise they'll be superior sound quality and you'll never receive a duplicate show. Log on to ClassicRadioClub.com and we'll rush you your first five-CD collection with 10 of the greatest classic radio shows of all time for only $4.99. Your first collection will feature Abbott and Costello, Sam Spade, Dimension X, Escape, Fibber McGee and Molly, Gunsmoke, Have Gun Will Travel, Inner Sanctum, Jack Benny, and Suspense. You're going to love the Classic Radio Club. Learn how to join at ClassicRadioClub.com. That's ClassicRadioClub.com. And now back to Hollywood 360 with Carl Amari. Next week, it's Boston Blackie. We'll have The Adventures of Blondie, Crime Does Not Pay, The Bing Crosby Show, The Phil Harris and Alice Faye Show, and Inner Sanctum Mystery. From my team here at Hollywood 360, thank you all very much for tuning in. Stay safe. We'll see you next time.